Let's take our Bibles and turn again to 1 Samuel. We'll study chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. Hear the word of God. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now... A harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Then Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, And sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. May he give us help from the teaching of it. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, you speak and the earth quakes. And Lord, as we come and hear your word again this evening, we pray that you would give our hearts a moment to tremble before you, before your power. O Lord, and your shepherding hand, O Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves in the scripture. O Lord, that we would see the example of your hand moving in the lives of your people to cause repentance. O Lord, that we would be a people who would turn and know your grace and find restoration through Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Some weeks ago, as we left off in this chapter, uh, I came back last week and we took it back up from where I thought we left off. And one of the things that I can simply assure you is that as we've read this text, you may have noticed it's a little bit of a strange chapter. It's, it's a different kind of narrative. It needs some explanation. And even some people would say it's kind of a difficult part of Scripture. And this is my assurance to you, I didn't skip it on purpose I didn't cowardly run from it, however, in the weakness of my flesh, forgot that I didn't preach the notes that I had prepared, and so we moved on. But so, in an effort not to skip any of the Word of God, we're going to go right back to it. We're going to take it up and, and look for the benefit of the Lord and to see 
his word clearly. We're going to rely on him in the study of scripture. Uh, Three things I want us to see in the text we have this evening. The first of them is suffering and repentance in verse 14. In verse 15, I want us to consider treating symptoms instead of causes. Treating symptoms instead of causes. And then finally, in the remainder from verses 16 uh, through 23, I want us to see lessons learned from fallen predecessors. Lessons learned from fallen predecessors. As we come to our text this evening, here in verse 14, we naturally are on the uh, contextual link of the verses immediately preceding it. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This telling of the calling of David, this son of Jesse. And you may recall Jesse was a man greatly advanced in years, that he was a man with many sons. And that Samuel, the prophet of God, on the prompting of the Lord, was sent to seek out this son in the household of Jesse to find the new king who would replace Saul, who had sinned against God, and whom the Lord had removed his spirit from. And you may recall also that as Samuel came to this family, he went through one brother after another brother after another brother. And none of the brothers were confirmed, not any of them, even though they were handsome men, capable looking, seemingly of capable character. They weren't the man of God's choice. But where was David? Well, he's a shepherd boy. And he was the other son that Jesse had, but the one that no one would have expected except for God. There is Samuel saying, well, it's not any of these. Do you have yet another? And there comes David, the shepherd of the sheep, the man after God's own heart, the man upon which the Lord would place the call. And as you look toward the very end of uh, verses 1 through 13, in verse 13 we read about a specific thing that happens. Uh, This symbol and even... Uh, this sign of the choice of God. We read that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This visible symbol that the Lord had chosen him to set him apart for specific service. Now the anointing with the oil, that's not special oil. It's ceremonial. It's something that's looked on to. It's a symbol of an invisible reality. And if you continue to read, you find out exactly what it's a symbol of. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So the anointing is a symbol of the empowering work of God the Holy Spirit resting on to David for the service of God. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, that's where we come to in verse 14, and we read an opposite verse regarding Saul. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This is a junction in the history of the people of Israel, in the kingship, in the household of the Lord, for the leading of the people, and it's very pointed, and it's giving us specific history of transition. But we need to wrestle, and I think if you're like me and you read this with me a few moments ago, or maybe you read it earlier today, 
this at least sticks out to you because there are some questions that verse 14 really forces us to ask. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And the most immediate question that any rational Christian person may ask is, how can that be? Pastor, aren't we taught that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1 tells us, is a deposit guaranteeing our salvation? That the Holy Spirit's like something that just doesn't wash off. It's not temporary. It's not a gift that's then withdrawn. And friend, I want to encourage you that when we read this, this Old Testament language about the Holy Spirit rushing upon a man. As we saw in Saul earlier, I believe it's in chapter 10. And now we see there with David and the removal of the Spirit. We're not talking about the same thing. It's not the indwelling of the Spirit, but rather the resting of the Holy Spirit upon a man. This isn't, this isn't the deposit guaranteeing our salvation. That doesn't come until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's specific, it's unique, and it's a thing that's a gift of the cross. A cross that has not held the mortal body of the incarnate Lord yet. Now this, again, is descriptive of a thing that the Lord does for men that he calls to be kings. He anoints them, as it were, with the Holy Spirit, strengthening them, giving them not only authority, but giftedness to fulfill the office of king. It's not only that we see kings having this uh, unique experience, the, the rushing upon or the resting of the Holy Spirit of David, and, or excuse me, Saul in 10 and uh, David in chapter 16. But in the book of Judges, we see that the Spirit uh, empowers and keeps and helps the judges, these, these men who were set apart by God for the leading of his people. We think specifically of the testimony regarding, um, uh, regarding uh, Samson. <laughs> I'm going to call him Saul, excuse me. Samson in Judges chapter 16 uh, verse 20, who uh, was so far from the Lord that by the time the Spirit was withdrawn from him, he didn't even realize it, that he'd been a man weakened for the task uh, that he was once called for. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, we see something in very much the same terms happening to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's prepared for ministry at the time of his baptism, which is not a baptism like ours, mind you. It's not a baptism for the remission of sins, but it's a baptism of preparation and anointing of Christ, specifically for the kingly role that he would perform among the people, that the Holy Spirit did what? Rested upon him as a dove. And one of the first things that Jesus ever says in his public ministry is that the Spirit of God has rested upon him, that he has prepared and provided with the grace of God for the work that he is to perform. These men, they were not in themselves equipped for the work that they were called to, but by the power of God, he enabled them to do that which pleased him. That's the first question. What in the world are we talking about with the Spirit of God being withdrawn or even rushing upon a person? But then there's the second part of uh, verse 14. And uh, I would expect that if you 
listened a moment ago, it probably made you ask a question. So the Spirit of God has departed from Saul and, the second part, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What? Hang on a minute. Any rational Bible reader that has a single bit of sense about the character of God would say, the Lord doesn't do evil things. How can this be? In fact, your Bible translation may say an evil spirit from the Lord. I think a better translation is a harmful spirit from the Lord rested upon Saul. And some of you may be sitting there and thinking, well, it must be something getting lost in translation. I just want to say, no, there's nothing lost in translation. It's very direct. It's very clear. It's not hard to translate. It's very simple. You could take Hebrew for a couple of weeks and you'd be able to do it yourself. It's simple. There's no other way to read it. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Now, this certainly doesn't fit the uh, image that the world would like uh, to assign to our God today. Our God is, oh, he's kind all the time. And he is kind in his character. He's sweet and sweeter than honeycomb and drippings there from it. He's always good. He gives you exactly what you wish. That's what the world would say. It's, you know, God is more omniscient and omnipotent than Amazon Prime. He gives you what you need when you need it and when you want it. That's what the world would have you think of God. God never does a wrong thing. And it almost sounds strange to the ears of some people to hear that God would torment somebody. But that's what this is saying. And we have to wrestle with this and we have to ask questions of it. And spiritually, we have to reconcile our hearts and souls with a God who's willing to give someone torment Pain, anguish, harm, hardship, difficulty. A God who is absolutely willing, in fact, and has a long-standing track record of extending his hand in justice against very, very many people. There is no separate God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It is all one God. And here is the most prolific truth that you need to know that the God who caused the pain of Christ is this God and he was even willing to torment his son. So we have to deal with this. What do we deal with here with Saul? What is going on? How can God torment this man and why would he do this kind of thing? Well, we got to think about Saul. We have to think about why did God withdraw his spirit to begin with? Well, it's the sin of Saul. And if you go back and you look in the preceding chapters, you can find it there in chapter 15. You've got Saul and he's disobedient to the command of God. And he's already shown a heart that fears men, not God. God tells him to wage total warfare, to lay to waste the entirety of the enemies, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it for the enrichment of the people, for the popularity that he will gain with people who believe that they can take of the spoils. And he also doesn't do it and put the king there of the enemy to death because he believes, well, he can collect him, a great and a mighty man, to be part of his court. He's out for himself. And then whenever he's confronted by the prophet Samuel, what does he do? 
Well, he tries to say, you know, it's God's fault, it's your fault, it's everybody's fault, it's not my fault. Okay, I didn't do it, I did a wrong thing, just go ahead, let's get it over with. Reestablish me, come on, I'll do whatever you want. I'll crawl on my knees, I'll kiss the ground, I'll pray whatever prayer you want, let's just get it over with. And it's not repentance that he does. He wants his own way, he wants things to go back to normal and to get on back to business As usual, it's not repentance. And so God here removes him from office. A man unfit, an unspiritual man, a man that doesn't run to the Lord and fall on his face in sadness and brokenness over sin. Not only does he remove him from office, remove his spirit, but now what does he do? He disciplines him with torment. With anguish, with pain, or however you want to think of it. Whenever historians look at this, we, we go all through the scriptures. We try to find some description of the torment of, of King Saul. We don't really get a good biblical answer. Uh, Josephus gives us an answer in his history. Uh, he says that uh, Saul is given into fits. That he would throw himself uh, on to the ground and uh, that he would contort and have something like a seizure. Does Josephus derive that from Scripture? No. Uh, Is it possible that that's what uh, Saul has dealt with? Could be. We just don't know, but it suffices to say that God's hand is against him. And you ask the question, well, why would God do it? And again, I would say it's discipline. It's pain so that he would turn. It's unpleasantness apart from God. It's not as if the Lord has departed and removed his spirit just to let Saul do whatever he likes. God has an interest in him. He hasn't removed him from the presence of the people of God. Not yet, anyway. It's pain with a purpose. It's suffering with the hope that he'll turn. Now, I do want to outline something for you. Whenever I call this disciplinary, it's Maybe hard for you to get your head around, but maybe I can make it a little bit more clear. There is a difference between discipline and abuse and discipline and violence. A significant difference. What is the difference? Well, violence against someone is something where we are trying to get something that we wanted our own way, in essence. We want to win. We want the kingdom. So there's violence to gain. It's a a game where gain is, in essence, the goal. Abuse... Is similar. It's violence against somebody, sometimes and usually for the satisfaction of the other person. So they in themselves are affirmed or given control of another person uh, rather uh, than having any other uh, generous goal in mind. But discipline is different. Discipline intends to cause moral action. Whether it's physical, whether it's social discipline, whether it's removal from some high office, whether it is sleeplessness, as could be the case. We even see this sort of torment in the heart of David regarding his own sins. Discipline has the intention to see a person turn and eventually be restored. It aims at a difference It's not self-centered, but it's centered on the person who endures it. And that is exactly what I think is going on in the life of Saul. However, what do we not see? 
the full arc of it. We see discipline, I do believe, but we don't see response to it profitably. Now, this is something to be said. Discipline is held, at least in part, in the hand of the one administering it, but it must be responded to freely by the heart of the one who receives it. Repentance is the right response, but you don't see it. So what do I want to say to us this evening? And it's this, not all suffering, not all suffering is just to produce endurance. Not all suffering uh, is just to sharpen or just to make us stronger. Some suffering is intended by God to bring us to a place of dependence upon him to turn us away from our sins and to cause us to repent. Some suffering is. So we ought to ask ourselves in seasons of suffering, the the defining question, is God disciplining me? And the answer sometimes may well be no. It may be that God is strengthening you. But then in other seasons of the searching of the soul, you might find out, Yes, yes, indeed, there is a thing deep in my heart, in my soul, between me and God. And he will not be pleased if I am comfortable in it. He would rather me be miserable until I find my rest in him. We go on in verses 15 through 19. And I want us to consider the treating of symptoms rather than the cause. The advisors of Saul, they look on him, whatever sort of torment he's experiencing, and it's quite obvious to them. And they say in verse 15, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. They've got their finger on the pulse of things. They know what's going on. Whatever the torment is, they can see, and they have rightly identified what the scriptures agree with them, that it is a thing of the Lord. But it's how they go on to treat it. Look at verse 16. They say, let our Lord command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. Do you know what a lyre is? It's a stringed instrument. Uh, this is an English translation of a Hebrew word, but suffice it to say it's something probably uh, like a guitar or a mandolin. It's an ancient instrument that we know is plucked with the hand or with our fingers. The reason why we know is because of how the Bible goes on to describe the specific playing of the instrument that often uh, we translate in the form of lyre. Their prescription is for the torment of the soul of Saul that he needs music. He says that when the harmful, or they say, when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, a man, he will play it and you will be well. It's pretty simple. It makes sense that whatever the torment of Saul is, that it's spiritual, it has emotional elements, mental elements, and they want to soothe his suffering. Now, I think this is some good advice from friends. They want to do David good, or excuse me, they want to do Saul good. They, they have a good uh, plan in place whenever one of them suggests, hey, I know a man, just the sort of man we might need. A good man, very gifted. A man who is blessed from God. This young man, David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, verse 18. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. 
You see, that's one of those things where you think of a, a reference for a job. Well, here's a biblical one and how it's laid out. Jesse, his son, David, that's the man. He's so gifted. Now, we don't know how uh, the advisors of Saul came to know David. We can only guess historically. The scriptures don't tell us that maybe they were traveling and heard him. We don't know. It's not important. But one of the things that we can say is if this person knows this much about David, he knows of David's spirituality. The Lord is with him. It stands to reason that the thing that they prescribe to Saul is not just rock and roll music. It's not, it's not uh, blues. It's not jazz. It's not rhythm and soul. It's not folk music. It's spiritual music of worship. We know that David is a man that God uses greatly, tremendously in this service of worship. David is a psalmist. He's a singer to the Lord. He writes half of the biblical hymn book or more. So whenever they prescribe for him music, it's not just any sort of music. It's spiritual music to deal with the soul. And there is very much help in the singing of the souls of the people of God. How many of us can say that we haven't experienced it ourselves in this very church and in our own lives at home in the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs? With gladness in the heart. We know that it's helpful. That it soothes the troubled soul. That it calms the troubled breast. That it is for us a manner in which the Lord ministers to us. And so there is a portion where they actually have prescribed for his symptoms. His suffering and adequate medicine to give him relief. It's not just any old thing. But what could have been if their concern was not just with the externals of a troubled heart, with the grief of a broken mind, with the convulsing of a troubled man, but rather with the root cause? What it could have been if they had looked to him and instead of said, saying, Saul, we see that this is a harmful spirit from the Lord that is tormenting you. You need music. If they would have said, Saul, we see that this is a harmful spirit from the Lord. From the Lord. And you need to repent. You need to drop to your knees and you need to search out where you have offended God. And Saul knew and he knew it clearly. He knew it personally. He'd been told by the mouth of a prophet specifically that the Lord would withdraw his spirit. Specifically that another would come and replace him upon the throne of the people of Israel. It was God that was tormenting him. He didn't need the soothing of the torment. He needed to be reconciled to God. And where am I going with this? It's because of this reality. Very often people today do this. We do this. You and I, we try to deal with things in our lives, things that are sufferings and torments, whether it's stress, anxiety, overwhelming jealousy, uncontrolled anger, addictions of all sorts, overwhelming sadness and depression. And what do we do? We turn to them and we treat the symptoms in a variety of ways. 
Sometimes we treat them with medicines. Those can have their place in the economy of God's grace, but it's not always or even usually the first line or the necessary line. Sometimes we treat it with exercise. We try to deal with these emptinesses in our own hearts and the things that we struggle with, with relationships. And you see this especially among young people going one relationship to another relationship to another relationship. And they turn in and they're, they're just a disaster because inevitably one person is trying to find from someone else a reconciliation between them and the other that really is owed to God. Again and again and again we treat the symptoms and not the root cause. And Sometimes, not always in suffering, but sometimes we need to ask the simple question. What is it that's directly causing these things that needs to be repented of? Where do I need to turn from my sin and unto God and find relief? It's a simple question. And friends, I just call you to it. You and I and everybody in the church and all of God's people need to be always searching ourselves out and examining the truth and the weight of our own repentance against the sufferings of this life and living a life ready, sensitive, tender, and involved in repentance. We think of repenting and it sounds like the language of penance and we have all these pictures of a formalistic religion and a a prescribed list of things to do. Crawl on your knees on the day of Corpus Christi in the procession. Whip your back. Starve yourself in so many different fasts. All these sort of different things. That's not what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is turning from sin unto the God who is willing to forgive and restore. It is that simple. Turning from sin and unto the Lord. Now that means very often the waging of war against that sin so that you're loose from its grip and you can run to the Lord with arms open. But that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to and we need to be very, very, very careful. Very careful and absolutely wise and guarded against being content to numb the symptoms of struggles that God may be calling you to so that you'll turn and run to him instead of relief in things that cannot restore. We go on and we read that David has a very successful ministry. It really is a ministry. He comes and he has this form of a physician. And it sounds kind of strange. Very few of us are going to go to doctors today and be prescribed with musical therapy, as he is. But that's kind of what David does, and that's what he is there. He's, he's an administrator of a spiritual medicine of a sort. And again, it's, we're told it has great success. Not only does Jesse take and load a donkey so that his son can take an offering uh, to David, but whenever he comes and he meets Saul, We read in verse 21 that Saul loved him greatly and that Saul established him in his court as an armor bearer or as a close servant with direct access to him. Not only that, but in verse 22 that Saul then sends to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service. He's found favor in my side. And then we're told that there is this cycle 
The symptoms come again. David cares for Saul. And again and again, that whenever the harmful spirit was upon Saul, David plays with his hand the instrument and Saul is refreshed and well. And so it's a successful ministry. But what should we see here? Well, it's that David learns lessons that are hard-learned lessons from his fallen predecessor. Some commentators, whenever they're looking on into verse 20, they see Jesse strategically in their minds. I suppose it could be. The scriptures are not plain about this. That Jesse, in the taking of a donkey, loading it with bread and wine and a young goat, that whenever he sends David off, that this is something of an offering. As if Jesse's heart is gripped with fear. That maybe Saul knows that this young man has been anointed as his replacement. Could be. But it's also entirely appropriate whenever you enter into the presence of a king to bring a gift. In any case, David is coming in a right frame. But he's not just coming at any season. Yes, he's come with gifts, but he's coming in the season of the suffering of Saul. And it really is one of the worst seasons, if not the worst season of Saul's life up until the point of the loss of his son and ultimately the demise of Saul by his own hand. And what does David see? Well, he sees Saul hardened in his sin. Yes, he sees him gripped by the torment of the harmful spirit. But again and again, he doesn't see Saul at any point turn and repent. He just wants relief. He doesn't see him do the thing that is necessary. And in general, we could say the big thing that David learns in his internship, in his training to be king, a successor to Saul, a shepherd boy, a country kid that spends time with sheep, that now he's in the court. The main thing he learns is not the manners of court. The main thing he learns is not the... Uh, The outlines of a good leader, the main thing he learns is not how to preach a good sermon. Three points that always get to the heart of things. Rather, he learns the hard lesson of what happens when God's people sin and refuse to repent. When they sin and they refuse to repent. And this, I believe, teaches David a significant lesson. There is some conjecture in the point, but whenever you think on David, you think of the historical texts that speak of David's ascension to the throne, the ark of his rule, the fall of David in sin, the household of his sons. We see that in the scripture. But if you want to hear David's voice, where do you go? Well, you go to the Psalms. And if you want to learn a thing about David, look over his shoulder and see the character of a man. I think we may see the outlines of what he's learned, a lesson from his fallen predecessor in the man, Saul, and that is that he should be quick to repent. Because there's a thing about David that he shares with Saul. They're both sinners. But then there is also a thing that is different about David, and that is he is always having the language of repentance on his tongue and publicly proclaimed. Turn in your Bibles to the 32nd Psalm. The 32nd Psalm. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David knows what the torment of sin is. For the day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. No treating of symptoms here. Straight to the Lord. He says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Does that come from learning over the shoulder of the deranged King Saul? It couldn't have hurt. It could have only been a good example of what not to do as a man of God. You go on to Psalm 51, if you'll turn there, just a few more pages. You see one of the great repentance psalms. We're told in the superscription, it's part of the text, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is on the date of his affair and his being called out to it by a minister of God. And this is his repentance, what it sounds like. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with his and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David is a repenting sinner. He's a king on his knees before the God of heaven. Where does he learn what not to do? Well, the lessons of Saul and the demise of his spiritual fall could not have been a thing ignored. How many of you can think in your life of spiritual leaders who have let you down? Friends. Maybe it's a leader in a church, a family member, a parent. A minister. And you just think about the the huge impact, the the gutting effect that that can have on the life of a Christian. And you you look onto it and it's just so discouraging. And you just think, oh. And it stays with you and it's just etched in your mind. Some of the things that are most heart-rending in my life is to see my mentors, some of whom have fallen into sin, egregious sin, unrepented of sin, and the horror that it wreaked in their own lives and the lives of their families and their churches. 
If it sticks in my mind so much and it causes such fear to grip my heart and it is an occasion for me to run from sin out of a fear that I can do exactly what they did, how can we imagine that David was different? And maybe this ought to be instructive for us, whether we're thinking on our predecessor, whether we're thinking on our forefather, or on a fallen friend, to look and to simply be like good little brothers, learning from the mistakes of the ones that come before, so that we can know this simple lesson, that one, we are sinners just like them, and two, we are called to be people ready to repent because we have a God who receives repenting people and forgives them and restores them. May that be the thing that God teaches us when we read about terrible falls in the scripture or whether we see them in the church or in the world. May the Lord help us to be a people better than the ones that came before us out of a fear of God and out of an assurance of his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture. That, Lord, you do give us hard Scripture. You do call us to ask questions. Oh, Lord, that you always give answers. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would be at work in us. Lord, make us tender. Lord, give us repentance and restoration. Lord, give us victory over sin. Oh, Lord, help us to know that you are safe. Oh, Lord, and that you are dangerous. And at every time and at all places, you are full of grace. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.